something on my heart since yesterday, and it comes from a very, very familiar story in the Bible, but I, I felt God speaking a little bit different angle to me uh, yesterday, and I was listening to a song, and it, it referenced something that made me think of the story of Peter when Herod puts him in prison, and uh, you know, I, I thought about what leads up to that. Peter has seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Peter's walked on the water. Peter's preached the message on the day of Pentecost that brought 3,000 people. Peter's been instrumental in praying people through in Samaria. Uh, The chapters right before this, Peter just opened the door to the Gentiles with Cornelius. It's not like Peter had a particularly narrow view of what God could do, I don't think. And, you know, the church is growing and expanding. There have been some setbacks. Stephen's been martyred, but Paul's coming to God and doors are opening everywhere. I don't think they had a particularly narrow view either of what God was capable of. But they get in this situation where Peter's in in Herod's dungeon and in the New American Standard it said the church was fervently praying for him. It's the same word that says Jesus prayed fervently until his sweat became like great drops of blood. They're, they're interceding, they're believing for something. But you know how the story unfolds. It says that the angel comes to Peter, he wakes him up, and he tells him to get up. And when Peter gets up, the chains fall off. But then it, Luke says, Peter did not think what was happening to him was real. He thought he was having a vision. And then the angel proceeds to tell him to do this, and he does it. Do that, and he does it. And then they start walking towards this gate. And the gate's shut, but as they get close to it, the gate opens on its own. They go outside, and the angel disappears. And it says, when Peter came to himself, he realized that this had really happened. And he considered it, and then he headed off to where the, he knew there were some people praying for him. And when he gets there, of course, he knocks on the door. The servant girl's so excited that she forgets to let him in, and she runs off, and she tells everybody. And they say, you're beside yourself. And she insists, no, no, this really happened. They say, well, it's Peter's angel. And it says, Peter keeps knocking, and I guess they finally decided to go see what Peter's angel wanted. And so they went down there, and they realized it wasn't, in fact, Peter. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about how often it is that for whatever reason, it can be sin in the sense of something that we've given ourselves to, or it can be some setback we've faced in life or some mistake we've made or some, some way where we've found ourselves in a place where we know where we want to be is inside the, with the people of God, in the presence of God, surrounded by the power of God. And we know where we are is in this place where it feels like it's impossible to get from here to there. And we believe that God is the only way we're going to get from there. We, we know that. We acknowledge that. We say, I can't do it. I've tried. How are you going to get from Herod's dungeon into Mary's house where all these people are praying unless God moves? And yet, when God starts to move, it's like, there's, I, I know it's in me. I, I've seen it time and time again in myself, and I've seen it in others. It's in human nature that somehow we still want to be in control enough to create some scenarios where God can move in. You know, it's like, well, I expect God might move like this, and I expect God might move like that, and maybe tomorrow at trial, Herod will have mercy on him, and maybe this will happen, and maybe that will happen. We create these little scenarios, sometimes without even realizing we've done it. It's just in the back of our mind that it's going to probably be something like this. Now, this is a man who had walked on water. This is a man who had seen people raised from the dead. This was a church that experienced power on a level that I think we're still hoping to experience it sometimes. And even they found themselves in this position when God starts to move, nobody can believe it's happening. Their first reaction to it is, yeah, that can't be. It seems like maybe Peter was beside himself before he came to himself and realized, oh wow, this actually just happened. And it says that, oh no, what was her name? Rhoda. They say, you're beside yourself. 
They were more inclined to think that an angel was knocking at the gate than Peter himself had been released. That tells you a level of how incredible they thought this was. If I came and told you, uh, so-and-so's knocking at the door right now, and you said, no, it's an angel, I'd be like, um, you've got real faith, man. I, I think it's just them, right? There's something inside of them that could not believe how fast and how miraculous and how powerful the release of this person was going to be. They had too many things set up that maybe it was going to take a certain amount of time and it was going to go a certain way and there was going to be certain things, but this kind of just boom, and in a matter of what, an hour? It was totally over with and done. That just could not be framed in their minds. It was just outside of the realm of anything apparently that they could believe for, despite the fact that these were saints of God and they were fervently crying out to God for something to happen. And in all of that, I started thinking about what actually happened. What actually happened was, despite the fact that Peter couldn't even believe what was happening to him, he just started doing exactly what he was told. The angel says, get up, and Peter doesn't say, well, I would if it wasn't for these chains. He gets up and the chains fall off. And then the angel says, get dressed. And he doesn't say, yeah, but there's soldiers. He just gets up and he gets dressed. And the angel says, follow me. And he doesn't say, yeah, but do you see the gate? He just keeps walking and the gate's not moving. Nothing's happening. But he just keeps moving towards it because God told him to do something. And in every step of obedience that Peter's taking, the entire world is literally rearranging around him. This isn't complicated, it's not hard, it doesn't take some sort of incredible, amazing, miraculous faith, it just takes obedience. And in fact, his obedience is outpacing even his own belief in what's happening to him. His obedience is outrunning his faith in what is even happening to him to the point that as he's obeying, he doesn't even realize that this is real. To him, it's like a dream. And, and as I started to pray about that in my house yesterday, my, my wife had taken the kids, they were doing something, the, the house was empty, I started feeling this power as I started thinking about the power that is unleashed in our simple steps of obedience to God. You say, I don't know how am I going to find my place in God. I've wasted all these years and I've wasted all this time, we'll just start obeying. You say, I don't understand how I could ever be set free. I'm in the, the dungeon of the devil, in the chains of sin, and guarded by the soldiers of darkness. How could I ever get out of this? You just take one step of obedience to the thing you feel God putting on your heart today. Even the church might be stunned at the release and the power that is, is released in that obedience. Even saints of God who have seen people raised from the dead might go away saying, I never saw that coming. I never thought that could happen. I never saw that kind of power unleashed. I never believed it could be that much even though I've been fervently praying for it. What kind of miracles are simply waiting on somebody to hear the voice of God and stand up and say, okay, in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the failure, in spite of the mistakes, I'm going to get up and see if chains don't start falling off me. In spite of my surroundings, in spite of what I see, where I want to go is into that house that Brother Simeon was talking about. I want to be surrounded by the people of God, the power of God, and the grace of God. And the only way to get from where I am to where I want to be is to just take one step at a time and let my obedience outpace even my own eyes. Let my obedience outpace even my own belief and just keep saying, God, no matter what, I'm coming. I see the gate, I see it's closed, and I'm still going because you said follow me. I see the impossibilities, but they don't do anything to slow me down. Because even in spite of my own eyes, I can feel something and I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the power of God. And isn't it something that it took Peter more effort to get through the gate and into the house than it did for him to leave Herod's dungeon? That should tell us something. It took him longer banging on that door saying, no, 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 it's really me, than it did for him to get out of Herod's dungeon. 
I feel like God is saying to each one of us, I don't, it doesn't matter if you've been living for God. Peter had been living for God for a long time. It doesn't matter if you're just coming to God. It doesn't matter where you are. If you feel like there's some disconnect from you being surrounded by the power and the presence of God and where you are right now, I hear the voice of God saying, would you get up? And would you start moving? The church is praying for you. We're going to see miracles we can't even believe are happening. But we're praying for you. And I want to make you a promise. We're not going to think it's your angel when you get to the door. We're going to go ahead and open it up for you and let you in. You know, I'd like us to just take a a minute and reflect on what for me has become a a central theme that's going to stay with me at least through this year, and I don't know how long. You'll remember that in the Heritage Center during the fair, I believe, I shared something uh, on sonship. And... um, the essence of what that message was about was that there are two kinds of acceptance in our lives. When God accepts us as his child, and there is when God approves us as his son. And I feel that this is becoming more and more central and important and focused in my own mind. And I'd like to take just a little bit of time to converse with you about what this means for us, because I actually believe that it relates to what the Lord is speaking to us about already in this meeting. We know that in order to be his child, I said in that meeting, you don't have to do a whole lot, you just have to be born. Jesus says in John 12, John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the right, the exousia, to become children of God to those who believed in his name who were born not of the will of flesh, but that's the object they were born. And that's how you get the power to be God's child. And we know that Peter says in his epistle, like newborn babes crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up. So he doesn't say crave the pure spiritual milk so that you can just keep craving it. He says crave it so that you can grow up in regard to salvation. So that's that's what it means to be God's child. We are God's child because we trust him. We are God's child because we are childlike. We are humble. We are God's child because he has given us his spirit. And whenever that process of humility, trust, and infilling begins, at whatever point, that's when we're God's child. But it is a security that we need. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And God wants us to feel that security, that confidence, that solidity that we are his child. But then comes the next phase. Because the Bible, this is a review, but you'll benefit from it in order to go where we're going. Amen? Then comes the next phase, because the Bible does not indicate that we should remain on a child level. Give me some examples of how the scripture indicates that we should not remain on a child level. Anybody? When I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man. Let's have another scripture. This is a central one. The heir, as long as he remains a child, is no different than a slave. Okay? That you should no longer be children tossed to and fro. You should be eating meat, but you're still drinking milk. Let us grow up into all things, into him who is the head. I mean, look at how much the Bible speaks about this idea that we're not supposed to stay stuck on the child level. But we keep the child relationship no matter what. My dad used to say to me, I respect you, 
as I respect your gift, I respect your, your calling, I respect you as a man of God, he would say, but in a sense, you're always going to be my child. And that's a good thing. And that's what God wants us to keep. Because naked and vulnerable, we came into this world and naked and vulnerable, we're going to leave this world. We're going to keep that childness all the way to the end. But this is a central scripture that Brother Matthew has mentioned from Galatians. Paul says the heir, as long as he remains a child, differs nothing from a slave. And that seems to be a negative thing in Paul's view. Now what in scripture defines a slave? What are some defining statements from Jesus or scripture that depict the the wrong kind of slave mentality? The slave does not know his father's will, Jesus said. And as a consequence, Jesus says he has no permanent place in the household. Jesus describes the slave mentality in Luke 17.10 when they asked him, Lord, increase our faith. And he showed them that their, their faith was killed by the attitude in them that they could only do what they were told. That they didn't have the will of the Father living inside. They didn't have the spirit of the Father living inside. You contrast that to Romans 8 where he says, As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the slave does not know the master's will and he only does what he's told to do. And I gave in that meeting the metaphor or the, the, the story of Elisha. And Elijah versus Elisha and Jehoash, the king of Israel. When the daddy was, had his hands over the king, the king did great. But when the daddy put the arrows in the king's hand, he only tapped three times and said, is that good enough? Because he's a slave. The will of the father doesn't live in him. The spirit of the father doesn't live in him. He only does what he's told to do. So whatever becoming a son is... It amounts to coming to a place of responsibility where we know the Father's will and we have the agency to do it. Amen? Another central point of that meeting was I talked about adoption. Who can tell me in a sentence or two what I said about Paul's use of the word adoption also from Galatians? So I said in that meeting that our English use of adoption means take someone else's kid and make it your kid. And I said that has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. That is not his use of adoption. Paul's use of adoption is take your immature child and put him in a place of responsibility as a son and heir of the estate. So it doesn't have to do with changing families. It has to do with maturity. And that concept of adoption, the term adoption is interchangeable with the term ordination or the term um, adoption, ordination, appointment, son placing, uh, all of these things are basically meaning the same thing when God is putting us in our place. And oh, laying on of hands, that this all depicts what is called a foundation stone, which is laying on of hands. Does that make sense? So this is the right. This is how this is working. This is a right whereby you're turned from a child into a son. And this is where we got to be going to. Now, it's interesting that I saw it in a new way. Hebrews says, if you are without discipline, of of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate and not a son at all. And what this meant, I've seen this more this week than ever before. It's new to me, even though the scripture isn't. But what this meant is that The father didn't have to give the brat the inheritance. (laughs) The brat had to prove himself as something more than a brat, and then he would have this time appointed by the father. But if he never proved himself, the father would disinherit him. He would not ever become that son. So when he says, if you're without discipline, you are illegitimate, He's not saying you weren't born. He's saying you're just like you weren't born. It's like you're a bastard because you're not going to get the inheritance until you can bear up under discipline and and be placed, have that son placing, that ordination, that confirmation 
that you, you are God's son. You are the father's son. Does that make sense? So it's like every child knew that if I can't grow out of this folly and find my place, I am no different than a slave. I am no different than a bastard. I don't have anything coming to me. The agonizing dilemma is to harmonize discipleship with acceptance. And I believe that in our body, this is what we've been struggling with over the past few months. We've been struggling with this hardship. And I think what it is, is in, in, the, in the body of Christ, in a godly family, fatherhood harmonizes two seeming impossibilities. It harmonizes constant acceptance with firm discipline. But in the world, you do not have that pattern. If you've got firm discipline, it usually equates to rejection. And if you've got loving acceptance, it usually excludes discipline. So when people come from that world, they come with a broken model of fatherhood that's living inside their head. And we don't blame them for that. We don't resent them for that. We need to help them with that. Because that's probably a majority of us or close to it. (laughs) There's this model inside of our heads that says, acceptance is what I need. And that's true. But it doesn't see that there is a loving kind of discipline that also is supposed to come. Because if we're without discipline, we don't change. And to tell anyone on this journey, you're never going to change again, is truly despair. That would break my heart. If I thought I was incapable of ever changing again. So what is this, this craving, this need for change indicates that although I want to be accepted, I also want to improve. I don't want to get stuck. I want to love better. I want to hear better. I want to serve better. I want to shine better. I want to give better. I want to be better. I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want to get stuck. That is a curse to lock someone in their condition. But we, gotta, we want to change. We want to grow. We want to mature. Amen? But that process involves correction. It involves a certain level of rejection even. But do we have this confidence that we are his child even while he's disciplining us? Think about this this phrase. We quote it all the time, but again, I heard it for the first time this past week. He scourges every son he receives. Does he scourge him because he receives him? Why am I getting a spanking? That's what scourging means. Why am I getting a whooping? Because I love you. Huh? No. I mean, I've never paddled one of my kids because, because they were good. I mean, have you? <laughs> good Lord. It's a reluctant thing that you have to do when they're very bad. So there's something, there's a contradiction going on even in the statement. He scourges everyone he receives. He wouldn't be scourging if he was receiving everything about you. There's something about you he's rejecting. But there's something about you he's receiving while rejecting. Do you follow? The part of you that he's receiving is your covenant of trust. That you are his kid. That you're secure in this relationship. But the part of you that he's rejecting is maybe your behavior. Maybe the sacrifice you made. The first time we see God rejecting something in the Bible is with Cain, right? And and the Lord is loving him. He tells him, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But he doesn't receive Cain's sacrifice. It's like, that's not good enough. And that's the challenge. You know, if if we... are incapable of encountering God's rejection of our 
behavior without feeling that he's rejecting us, we're, we're going to get in a big world of trouble. Do you see? We're in a world that is driven by performance. And so if somebody points out that we have failed, we think that we are the failure. It's like I, I gave the example years and years ago about this. I said, if somebody comes to you and says, oh, that's a beautiful shirt, but there's a spot right here. Come into the kitchen. And you don't say, oh, the shirt is a spot. And you don't say, someone doesn't, God doesn't come to you and say, that's a beautiful life, but you've got this flaw. And all we say is, oh, God, he just called me a flaw. There's got to be a, an ability to separate an essential you as God's child from your mistakes, from your behaviors, from your sin. And if you can't, that shows such a complete identification with your sin, you think you are your pride. You think you are your rebellion. So when God's not coming after you, he's coming after your sin, you're like, oh, he hates me. He rejects me. This is so painful. No, he loves you but he rejects this about you. And your unbelief tells you you can't get rid of it. But that's just a lie. You can lose it just like that. And that's the word of faith that's coming to us today. And so he says, come on, you're my kid. When have I ever had to discipline one of my children where that discipline meant that I was rejecting them as my child? That's bizarre. Good grief. In fact, only if they weren't my child would I forgo discipline. For example, some of your children. <laughs> if some kid is making a ruckus and you get all activated and concerned and then you realize it's not your kid, it's like, cool as a cucumber. No, it's his. <laughs> Never mind. No, I, I checked on it. It's, it's his. <laughs> <laughs> that zeal is tied to a sense of ownership. To a sense of responsibility because you're my kid. I'm going to help you with this. That's how God feels about us. Because you're my kid. And you're supposed to be reflecting my glory. I'm going to help you with this. And all the kids out in the world are screaming and pitching their temper tantrums. Let their parents deal with them. But you're my kid, the Lord says. Thank you, Jesus. You with me still? So, there's something he rejects even while there's something deeper that he accepts. The discipleship process has to include this. Thank you, Jesus. What makes us receive, what, do we have to do anything to stay as his child? Yes, we have to keep that covenant of trust, humility, faith, amen, identity. We have to be childlike in order to be his child, don't we? Because he says in Matthew 18, 3, unless you humble yourself and become like one of these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's something we got to do. But that, what is the word grace? What does it mean? It means acceptance. It means favor. It means welcome. So if we want to be received, we have to stay humble because he gives grace to those who are humble, those who are childlike. About a year ago, oh, it was more than that actually, about two years ago maybe, Brother Zach and I had a conversation about the analogy, the metaphor between the exodus of the children of Israel and how that depicts our own journey with the Lord. And we talked about it and we said, well, you know, some would say that uh, crossing the Red Sea is our initial faith and grace through salvation, but then the Jordan is repentance. Uh, no, that didn't work because uh, the Bible so clearly makes our initial regeneration analogous to the Red Sea over and over and over and over and over. Um, but you think of the scriptures yourself. So, so what is it? What is that? What is the Jordan analogous to? Well, I, I suppose some people say that it, the, the Jordan is when we cross over into uh, cross over into, into eternal life with the Lord when we die and go to heaven. That's how most of the songs are written, right? Time to cross over the Jordan. And there's certainly truth in that. But as we were speaking, Brother Zach and I again this week, 
and I was kind of going back over this whole idea of sonship, it hit me with a ton of bricks. <laughs> that the Red Sea is when we're born as God's child. It's when we repent, when we're baptized in water, baptized in spirit. But the Jordan is when we find our inheritance through adoption. And in between those two places is the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of testing and training. My dad used to point out that the word wilderness shared the same root as the word bewildered. And he said, our wilderness often equates to a season of bewilderment. When we don't understand how God is leading and he's not leading how we would lead. But we've got to learn to follow him. And I feel like that's my burden today is just to think about this a little bit and say, are, are we caught in the wilderness? Are we in between the Red Sea and, and the Jordan? You see, in modern Christianity, one of the most knee-jerk reactions to discipleship is a response that immediately harkens back to initial conversion. Does that make sense? You say to someone, brother, <clears throat> you really exuded some pride when you said that. And they immediately start talking about what God did for them when they were saved. It's like, yeah, so? How does that correlate? Well, that's when my old nature was drowned in the Red Sea. That's when all of it was solved. That's when the Egyptians who I saw, I would see no more forever. And there's this notion that just because God gave us this decisive beginning, we have no need for endurance. We have no need for ongoing sanctification. We have no need to take up our cross and die to our carnal nature daily. We die decisively in our great act of repentance and salvation. And so then we push back all of the grace of discipleship that would change us, grow us, conform us to God's image, we push it away as almost the work of the devil because you're challenging what God did through salvation. But it's a delusion. He who began a good work in you will also bring it to completion. You have need of endurance. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Let us press on to know the Lord. We are not of those who draw back under perdition, but who press on to the saving of the soul. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's a process. And you don't want to get caught in the wilderness between God's acceptance of you as his child and God giving you your inheritance as his son. Do you think Paul might have had this in mind, this idea that we cross over and then we go through this wilderness period? Can I read you some scripture here? 1 Corinthians 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, believers, that our fathers were all under the cloud in which God's presence went before them and they all passed miraculously and safely through the Red Sea and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's writing to a church of saved Christians, amen? And he's telling them that Israel had everything you think you've had. You want to be baptized? They were baptized. In water, done. In the spirit, done. They had the cloud. They had the water. He's saying they had what you have on a certain level. And all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all of them ate the same spiritual food. You want the true bread, the one loaf? It's just what he's talking about in this chapter. All of them ate the same spiritual food and all of them drank from the same spiritual drink for the they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. So he's trying to tell them, you think you're secure? They had what you take pride in. 
Nevertheless, God was not well pleased with most of them. For they were scattered along the ground, strewn along the ground, because of their lack of self-control led to disobedience, which led to death. Now these things, the warnings and admonitions took place as an example for us. So he thinks that the wilderness period between the Red Sea and the Jordan was an example for the church. These are an example for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Do not be worshipers of idols, of gods, false gods, as some of them were. The people sat down to eat and drink, and after that made a golden calf. Do not indulge in immorality as some of them did. 23,000 were killed in a single day. We must not tempt the Lord. Amen. No, No idolatry, no immorality, no tempting of the Lord. We must not tempt the Lord. That is, test his patience, question his purpose, or exploit his goodness as some of them did, and they were killed by the serpents. Why do you think serpents killed them? Because they were testing. The serpent is the mechanism starting in the garden that tests his patience, that exploits his goodness and questions his purpose. This is solved in the the death of Jesus. And do not murmur in unwarranted discontent as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So he's afraid that the Corinthians are going to go through these same things and suffer the same consequences. Now these things happen to them. He repeats it again. These things happen to them as an example and warning to us. They were written for our instruction to admonish and equip us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands firm take heed lest he fall. No temptation, regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you that is not common to human experience, nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance, but God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature and is trustworthy, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist, but along with the temptation he has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well so that you will be able to endure it without yielding and will overcome with joy. Therefore, my beloved, keep far away from any sort of idols. And that includes loving anything more than God. The Bible tells us that stubbornness is as idolatry and rebellion, the sin of witchcraft. The only way stubbornness can be an idolatry is if you love your self-will like you should love God and thereby make an idol out of the dictates of your will as you should respond to the God who dictates his will in your life. But these things were written down for our example. This is what they were going through, and this is how they blew it, and this is how we blow it. We freak out in the day of testing. We start to murmur. We start to question. We start to doubt. We start to recoil and we say, get us across the Jordan or we say, get us back to Egypt. We're unhappy, we're restless and we don't want to face that God is trying to accomplish something here that cannot be accomplished any other way. And there is a timetable in this process. We can't reject the sonship discipline indefinitely and stay secure as his child. Because there is a time appointed by the Father. And if we're not ready when that time comes, then we miss the giving of our inheritance. Did the first generation miss their inheritance? What happened to them? Their bodies were strewn down in the wilderness. They lost the whole purpose. They went through it for so many decades, but they lost it. They didn't keep that faith that says, God, I know I'm your child, but I also know you're trying to change me. You're rejecting something about me even while accepting me as your son. The only two who made it 
were distinguished by being those who had a heart of trust. Numbers tells us, none of the the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. Holy as in entirely followed me. Hmm. What does it mean to partially follow him? It means to go through the motions, to get up and pull the stakes of your tent, to fold it up and go through the motions, but in your heart you're murmuring, you're complaining, you're doubting, you're questioning God's purpose. Why is this happening? And that's all it takes to rob us of that inheritance for which it's all about in the first place. That's why Paul says, do everything without what? Grumbling and complaining so that what? You may become sons of God. There's a sonship that's going to happen where the child turns into a son at the Jordan crossing. But if you grumble all the way to the Jordan, you're going to cut short the process. You're going to abort the process. And though you were born as a son, you're going to die as illegitimate. Don't let that be you. The only thing worse than abandoning God altogether is following him partially. Because you delude yourself that you're obeying, but your heart is not in it 100%. You're the double-minded man. That's why James says, whatever you ask, ask in faith without any doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, tossed here and there. He says that double-minded man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. None of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not followed me fully, wholly, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Oh God, let that be said of me. Let that be said of you. Holy follow the Lord. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Everything, God. Holding nothing back. Isn't that the pledge we make of a good conscience? For better or for worse. All the way. The Red Sea is conversion. The wilderness is the training and discipleship. And the Jordan is the adoption. And if you expect the wilderness to be the adoption, you're going to get real mad at it. And if you expect the Red Sea to be the adoption, you're going to get real upset at the wilderness. But if you understand God's made me a child in his kingdom, now I need to learn to serve under the guidance of others as I am trained and discipled. Okay, good. Then there's going to come a day No matter who I am, every woman and man in this room who is called to be part of the kingdom, there's going to come a day when God says my word is internalized in you. When God says you're no longer a child and therefore you're no longer a slave because you know the master's will. You know your father's will. And he's going to put you in a place of constituted service. That's not just for elders. That's not just for leaders. That's for all of us. That's why we have this cliche in our fellowship. I want to find my place. (laughs) Because that's your inheritance. That's when you come into your constituted role in the kingdom. And people can rely on you. And God can call you a son in his house. You have a permanent place in the house. And even though repentance happened at the Red Sea. Even though baptism and all of that took place at the Red Sea. There's still more. Because God makes a way in the wilderness, doesn't he? There's still more repentance that you got to go through. More dying. I died to the tyranny of my will. I gave up on my project. But then I'm going to have to die to my fleshly way of doing spiritual things. I'm going to have to die to my pride. 
And there's a lot of ways I can blow it in the wilderness. I can murmur and complain. Amen. I can fall into sin. I can rise up in rebellion. I can faint in the day of adversity. There's a lot of ways. Amen. But God, help me to make it to the Jordan and help me to cross over. What are some of the differences between the crossing of the Jordan and the Red Sea? Let's look at it. At the crossing of the Red Sea, we have a messianic leader, type of Jesus. And he's doing it all, isn't he? They're just a bunch of scared slaves getting all these detailed instructions and following him out there and crying all night like a baby who can't be rocked to sleep. But Moses is out there with his rod all night long, you know, and God's going to make a dry path for their pretty little feet to walk over. And, and they wouldn't have gone if they had had any other option, but the devil and Pharaoh and all their sins and addictions are breathing down their neck. It's like, get across now. They get across and barely do they get across. It's like, we're thirsty. We're hungry. Babies. Babies. And then look at the crossing of the Jordan. Now the messianic leader has ascended. He's gone. And now it's the church. The priesthood must go forward. And God says, I want you to do it at flood stage. Huh? Not only are we not going to get this dry little perfect ground, but he's telling us to do it at flood stage. And then he tells us we've got to put our foot in the water. This is a whole new level of faith, responsibility, and sonship. Do you see it? Moses isn't there. It's the priesthood now. Got to do it at flood stage. And they step out. And God parts the waters. And they walk across and they bring the ark of God. The glory of the Lord is is front and center leading the way. The presence of God is leading the congregation. It's not the individual messianic leader. And that's why when the Lord speaks about what happened there, he says, remember how Yahweh your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell those years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Yahweh your God disciplined you. This is where the Hebrews passage comes from. The description of what God was doing to Israel through the wilderness. Are you stuck in your wilderness? Are you bewildered in your wilderness? It's okay to be confused. It's okay to get it wrong every now and again, but can you follow him wholeheartedly? Can you keep faith alive? Can you say, God, I'm not the one leading this. You're the one leading this. And one step at a time, I want to pass the test. Thank you, Jesus. I'm still here. Hallelujah. My shoes of the gospel didn't wear out. My faith is still guarding my heart from the fiery darts of the devil. I'm still here, Lord. Jesus typified this whole process for us, didn't he? In one season, he's in the wilderness, he's at the Jordan, and he's hearing something from the Father. But he did in 40 days what the children of Israel took 40 years to get to. He went in to be tested just like them. But he evoked the word of God and he stood on it and he commanded the devil to get behind him. No matter his hunger, the devil tried to get him to make his own bread just like he tried to get the children of Israel to clamor for their own food. But he didn't. He would rather die than doubt, distrust the love of his father. He stood also in the Jordan and what was the voice that came from heaven? Was it a voice of confirmation? Was it a voice of adoption in the sense that we're speaking today? Was it a voice that says, this is my beloved son? Thank you, Jesus. And what marked 
what marked his whole process, whether into the Jordan, into the wilderness, out of the wilderness, in the spirit. He was a son. And that's what marks our, our process as sons of God. It says Jesus went into the wilderness led by the spirit. Jesus came down out of the wilderness and the spirit was upon him. Jesus came up out of the water and the spirit ascended upon him. And then he marched right into the first synagogue and he opened the Bible and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And this was the one about whom it was just spoken. This is my son. God, I want to come into the spirit on a whole new level. And that's what it means to follow God holy. Not going through the motions. But when it all comes from within, you can't doubt it. The Father loves you. And He accepts you. And He's brought you across the Red Sea. But He's still got a journey where He's going to teach you to be discipled, to be tested, to be trained in the wilderness. You can spend as much time as you need there. Don't make it 40 years and don't die there. Amen. Because the time is coming when you're going to join with the church and together we're going to cross over into the place that God has given for us as an inheritance. When somebody can say about you that you are faithful with the little that has been given to you. When somebody can say about you that the burden of love and the will of the Father lives inside of you. And you don't shun instruction But you don't either avoid responsibility and initiative when someone can say that about you. When they can put a need in your hands and know that it's going to be met. When people are often thinking, can I give him more? Can I give her more? When you are faithful as a son who has internalized the burden of the Lord, that's when it's time for you to be put in your place. Where the Lord confirms you and says, this is your inheritance. This is what I've called you to do for my people. This is on the other side of the Jordan. This is the houses you didn't build, the wells you didn't dig, the vineyards you didn't plant, the walls you didn't build, the cities you didn't build. But you can come in and take it. Thank you, Jesus. Joshua was such a son as was Caleb. And they were old. But when they came to that day of adoption, of crossing the Jordan, they said, give me my inheritance. I'm ready. Thank you, Jesus. Give me what's mine because I'm not that brat in the father's house. I've been turned into a son. Sure, I was born legitimately, but I've been born to responsibility. I've been born to sonship. Mm -hmm.